So good morning, Missio. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here at Missio. I'm going to apologize right now if my voice is a little bit cracky or a little bit uh, like I'm losing it here and there. Um, I was watching the Beaver game last night, and uh, man, the Beavers look good. The Huskies did not. I'm sorry. And Oregon did not, and I'm not sorry. So... Oh, it's a good Sunday. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm going to jump right in uh, and just, we have a lot to cover. Um, We're in a series in Nehemiah, and we're only in chapter 3 today. And it's a thick book. It's a book that's been challenging for me and for the staff team as we... um, walk through it, and the teaching team as we try and figure out, yeah, what, what to bring each week. Um, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray, and um, that's for me and for you so that we can just be ready to, to receive the word. So join me in prayer, please. Yeah, Lord, I just hear those words, peace, be still. And as Hemi prayed earlier, just knowing just the, the, the world and the things that are coming at us each day, um, we need you. We need your peace. We need to be still. We need to know you're with us to calm the storms. And so that's my prayer this morning, that you would calm us and allow us to hear your word, allow us to receive what your Holy Spirit is bringing to us. So we're here this morning, Lord, and ready for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we are in this series of Nehemiah, and I kind of want to lay the groundwork and the setting here, kind of like when you watch Star Wars and those opening credits come and you kind of have to figure out what's going on before the episode starts. Um, I never read that. It goes too fast. So I'm going to help us this morning by reading the setting for Nehemiah. So the book of Nehemiah tells this history of the people of Israel during the time period between 445 and 432 B.C. Nehemiah was originally written uh, and paired with the book of Ezra. So it was Ezra-Nehemiah. And it was a single book in the Hebrew Bible. This document was um, the fulfillment of God's promise that Israel would return home to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile in Babylon. For 70 years, the people of Israel were exiled in a foreign land. It's important to remember that Israel was carried off into exile into Babylon in 586 BC out of God's mercy and judgment on the people's repeated infidelity and and disobedience to him. Now, Nehemiah himself is an Israelite who was born in captivity in Babylon and somehow becomes cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Susa, 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. He hears about what's going on, the destruction and the shame of God's people, and trusts God to use him to be part of the restoration and revival of the city and his people. Now, as we enter into the story in Nehemiah, the Israelites have already rebuilt the temple under under Zerubbabel, 
there's a lot of hard names, so you're going to hear me just stumble and mumble. And, we re- and, and the reading of the law is happening through Ezra. There's been one unsuccessful attempt to rebuild the city walls about 20 years prior to this. And now Nehemiah is recounting the story of the third movement of God's people to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild their lives, reclaim their culture, restore their renewed homeland, their ruined homeland, through the rebuilding of the city wall. So that's where we start the story. Last week, um, Vicky spoke about what it looks like to use our our position, our power, our privilege, our where we are in our lives to do something like Nehemiah did. Her challenge for us, we're, we're going through each week and giving us what we're calling a Nehemiah challenge. And her challenge was, what steps can you take towards using what you have to restore something that is broken? And I sat and I thought about that during the week, and I was like, man, this is a hard, hard ask. What is it? What do I have? And what steps can I take to help restore something that is broken? The world is broken. My world is broken. Your world is broken. There's a lot of broken stuff. But what steps do I need to do to take to enter that? Nehemiah, we saw last week, he stepped in and said, I'm going to go to Judah where the temple was and I'm going to walk around and look at the ruins and see what needs to be done to start rebuilding this wall. And that's where we enter chapter 3 and chapter 4. So let's start there. I'm going to read chapter 3, 1 through 12. And again, a lot of hard names. And I'll mess them up, but have grace on me, please. Chapter 3, 1 through 12, if you have your Bibles, go there, or you can read it on the screens. Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emer, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Then next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bersha, son of Meshazab repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. The, ne- the next... And next to them, the Tikotites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. I'm going to skip over 6 and 7 here because it's kind of repetitive, right? It's the same pattern they built next to, they built next to. And I'm going to jump into 8. Next to them, Uzel, the son of Horiah, goldsmiths, they repaired. Next to him, Honah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rafuya, the son of Hur, ruler half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Hamurf, repaired opposite of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hasbana, repaired. 
Malachi, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pathmob, repaired. A lot of repairing, right? Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halasha, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now I'm going to stop there, but the rest of the verses, it goes to 31 more verses, repair, repair, next to them, next to them, next to them, repaired, next to them, repaired. It's this pattern that you see. Now these names probably mean very little to us, unless you are a Bible historian and geek out on this stuff. It means really little. But I wonder if, we, if, if it meant a lot to Israel. I mean, think about it. it. It would be 70 years they're away in exile and they're coming back. And the sons of Hanah, the sons of Jerah, the sons of all these people start building. It would be like 40 years from now if Missio was in ruins and, they, and all of a sudden the sons of come back, right? You think about it, I'm like, Otis and Mason, sons of the Cons, Danny, sons of the Bechtels, Caden, son of the Toes, Augie and Arthur, sons of the Rubens, Leah and Lana, daughters of the Yangs. They come back, and it means something to us because we know those names. We know the history. So for Israel, they're coming back out of Babylon, out of exile, and the generations that are, that are now are doing something about what was. It's more than just building walls. It's more than just building structures for the Israelites. Yes, the wall, it's physical. It's a structure. It, it, it creates a safe haven. It's a place of worship. It's also a place of living, a place of business and commerce. It becomes the city that they identify with. But the walls, the buildings, the city, they represent more. They represent a community. It represents a culture, a culture of renewal. It represents the people of God resetting their roots and living out the call to be God's people once again. They were exiles in Babylon and have now returned to Judah to restore community, to restore their place of worship of God, to remember they were called to be set apart. What I love about this picture of the rebuilding of the wall is virtually everyone takes responsibility to rebuild the wall. I say virtually because remember in verse 5, the Tekotites nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Right? But everyone else, young and old, sons, daughters, priests, merchants, goldsmiths, perfumers, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, everybody, except for the Tekonite nobles, helped to restore the wall. They were about communal restoration and revival through personal faith in action. 
right? You get this picture of this wall being built and people coming to build it. It wasn't just the gifted and the talented brick makers and the masons that they hired out to do the work. They all took personal responsibility for their community. In faith, they trust that this is what God wanted us to do. This is who God wants us to be. So they come in faith, and they move in action, and they begin to build. You have this image of these groups of people building the wall, and next to him, men of Jericho built, and next to him, them, them Zakur, they built, and Amur, he built, and next to him, they built, and next to him, they built, and the goldsmith built, and the perfumers built, and they build, and they build the wall back and restore it. Together, side by side, they stand next to each other. They consecrate it. They set it apart. They pray over it. They set bars and, build the, and, and rods. They lay foundations. And they build. And they repair the things that were broken. So inspiring. And then we get to chapter 4. There's momentum happening here. The walls are being repaired. Foundations are being set. Restoration, revival. It's happening. But the bullies come into the picture again. Remember in chapter 2, Sambalat and Tobiah, they come. So we read in chapter 4, Sambalat and Tobiah, they start to mock and jeer what's happening. They don't like what they see. They don't like this community actually reviving. They're a threat. There are people that are finding their roots again. So they make fun of the wall. They point out its flaws, right? They're like, even a fox can't walk on that wall. It will tumble. It's all cricket. It's all this. And it's not. Of course it is. Who built it? The perfumers? The goldsmiths? The nobles? Like all these different people who don't actually have the skill set are working together to build something. And it's not complete. It's not pretty. It's not the best. But it's what God has called them to do. So they do it. This happens, and Nehemiah begins to pray, and he continues to pray against the jeering, against the criticism, against them, and they continue to build. They continue to build. Then we get to 4, 9 through 16, and let me read that. And we pray to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Nehemiah begins to pray. He begins to set people out to watch out for Tobiah and, and the rest that they are recruiting. And in Judea, they said, in Judah, they said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. 
by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Basically, the people of, of Israel, they're saying it's too much work. This is virtually impossible. And as they're saying that, the enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Their enemies are plotting out a sneak attack. At that time, the Jews who lived near them from all directions had said to them ten times, you must return to us. Friends, there's always going to be the naysayers. There's always going to be the people who say, give up on your dreams. There's always going to be people that say, it's way too hard to do this. Just go back to what you were doing. Go back. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans and their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When your enemies heard this, when our enemies heard this, that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, they all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Nehemiah continues the work. He sees what's happening, right? And he encourages them. Encourage, encourages them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We have to fight. We have to fight for our brothers, our sons, our daughters, our wives, and our homes. So this is what we're going to do. You keep building, and the rest of us are going to come behind you. We're going to hold spears. We're going to hold shields. We're going to take up our bows, and we're going to defend your back. You see this image? They come, and they put their hands on their backs. They, have, they are watching the backs of their brothers and sisters and daughters. The external forces are coming, and Nehemiah calling on others to come and defend and protect. They aren't working just side by side anymore. Now they have each other's backs. While our teaching team was processing this idea, these ideas in chapter two, um, or three and four, Vicky had said something that really caught my attention. She said, this is kind of what community of, the community of God looks like, right? It's, it's like the Acts 2 community that we always talk about in the New Testament. But it's happening in the Old Testament times. Israel had all these things in common. 
They were not about themselves. They were about living for each other, to live selflessly, carrying out the mission and vision of being the family of God together. Communal restoration and revival through individual faith and action. Missy, what does that look like in our time? What does building a community look like for us, the Missio family of God? And I say that, and I know there's, there's, there's guests in the room and online, but this is, in, in general, what does it look like to be a healthy community of God? This past year and a half shook so many of us. We're coming out of our own exile, aren't we? We were forced out of our norms. And we're coming back hoping for what was. But we're finding that our rhythms, our patterns, our structures, our present realities are actually shaken. And some of it is in rubble. And see, we have the opportunity to start fresh, to start new. Yes, there's some things that need to be repaired. There's some things that won't look the same and aren't the norm. We have this beautiful building. And if you didn't know, you didn't hear, Missio is going to purchase this building for $800,000, half of its appraised value. We have this beautiful building. In the last year, we now have an online expression. And so all these people on Zoom who can't make it here each Sunday are participating too and are part of the community too. We have Spaces like missional communities, spiritual formation cohorts, ministries for men and women, for youth and for the kids. But it looks different. They have to be rebuilt. They have to look different than what was when we went into exile. And now we're coming back. That's the physical stuff. That's the things that in this community, as we work to, to reestablish systems, to reestablish ministries, to reestablish the, the new norm that we have to look at. We're called to a communal restoration and revival through individual faith and action. We have this vision of standing next to one another and next to one another and next to one another. And we have this vision of being the people of God who expand the kingdom, that make Jesus fully known so others can fully know him. But just like Judah, they're saying, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble, and by ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Missio, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. I get to walk with you and hear your stories. I hear your burdens. 
I hear the burdens that are making you want to quit. I hear you saying, life is too hard. We're experiencing sickness. We're experiencing anxiety. Our work is filling us with stress. Many of us are lonely. We've experienced death with friends and with family. There's family division. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I get to walk with you and hear these stories. And I, I always ask, so who else have you told? Who else is feeling this with you? Who else is carrying your burdens? Why are you suffering alone? I urge and I tell you, will you cry out to others? Why haven't you cried out? You know, it's interesting as when, when I was reading Nehemiah at the beginning this week, in the last few weeks, I imagine that verse 4 was actually that they were crying out. But the verse in, in chapter 4, verse 10 starts out, in Judah it was said. So people were saying these things, right? They may have been grumbling under their breath. They may have been just saying it kind of quietly. But they weren't crying out and saying, I need help. They were just saying, this is too hard. What are we going to do? There's too much rubble. Friends, these external forces, the enemies, they're coming. If you look at that, they... they the people of Judah said this thing. And then the next verse was, they're coming to kill them. The enemy was coming to kill them. For us, the enemy is not warring communities. It's not different tribes coming. It's not people coming to attack you really. Not for most of us. The enemy looks more like the culture of Babylon, doesn't it? This present culture that we live in. A culture that is antithetical to God's kingdom. What I mean by that is we live in a society, in a culture that values and promotes individualism. A siloed community. You do this here. You do this here. And I'm going to take care of myself and get what I can out of it. It's focused on self. It's individualistic. We live in a culture that lacks responsibility for our fellow brothers and sisters. We don't even call them brothers and sisters. We call them something else. Those foreigners. Those homeless people. Those bums. Those and we create factions, and we treat them unhuman-like. We don't ask anymore if we are people's brothers and keepers. You do you, and I'll do me.
The enemy is that privacy, that protection, because we have shame. We have guilt. We don't want to burden anybody else with our problems. The privacy, because we're afraid of what people are thinking and how people are judging. The culture of self-sufficiency that we value our ability to do it ourselves. These cultural values are opposed to God's kingdom values. And how do we know that? I'm not just saying that and making up things. We know that because Jesus does not represent those values. He doesn't live this way. He isn't individualistic. He isn't private. He isn't self-sufficient. You don't see Jesus encouraging these cultural values because his kingdom is upside down. His kingdom is actually opposite of this. As much as we may want to read with the lens of these cultural values, it's not there. We have to look at the life and the ways of Jesus, the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus, we say. These things keep us from asking for help. They keep us from engaging community. They keep us from being authentic. They keep us from being vulnerable. They keep us from sharing our stories. They keep us from crying out. Guys, I don't want that for our community. I don't want to be the only one because I'm on staff that gets the benefit of hearing your story, of walking with you, or experiencing the way that you love on me. I don't want that for our community. I want everybody to experience that. So last month, right before we were about to start school, my kids were about to start school, I contracted COVID. I contracted COVID. And so I had to go into isolation and quarantine. And for three days, I was like, oh my gosh. The shame, the guilt. And then three days in, the rest of my family tests positive for COVID. And so I'm not alone, but I'm with them in our home. In those 14 days, I wanted to keep it private. I was ashamed. I did everything right as I was supposed to. And I still got COVID. And I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want people saying, where'd you go? Weren't you vaccinated? Didn't you have a mask? And I said, yes, yes, yes. And I still got it. I don't know. I didn't want to burden people with my issues. I got it, so I better handle it. I wanted to be self-sufficient. But friends, this isn't the first time I've been sick. This isn't the first time I've experienced suffering. This isn't the first time I knew I could not hide, and I could not pull away, and I could not isolate. I had to tell 
Dom. I had to tell our staff team. I had to tell the people that we might have exposed. And in that, when I told my friends, when I told my community, they rose up and they stepped in and they had my back. People dropped off meals. They brought puzzles and snacks and games to drop off for the kids and for us to hunker down for 14 days together. We got phone calls and texts of prayer and encouragement. And we made it through. But again, I'm hoping that that's not because I'm the pastor here. I would hope that anybody else that reached out would experience the same thing. I would hope that you felt safe enough to share your burdens, your suffering. The enemy wants to keep us from community. The enemy wants to keep us from experiencing abundant life to being reminded whose we are. So as I look at this in my charge to you, just like Nehemiah, he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sisters, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Missio, that's my invitation to you, my charge to you. Do not be afraid of the enemy. Do not fall for the lies of the world. Do not suffer alone. Do not live life alone. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. I imagine us building a community where this person, and next to them, this person, and next to them, this family, and this family. And when the burdens come, and when it feels like your walls are falling down, that you cry out for help, and then the next person comes and holds you up. I'm going to leave you with the this week's Nehemiah challenge. Tell someone you need, uh, tell someone what you need and ask for help. Tell someone what you need and ask for help. And the second challenge of the week, go to someone and ask, how can I help? How can I help? Two simple steps to, to go forward in so that we can build this community, so that we have communal restoration and revival through personal faith and action. Let's pray. Jesus,
I love this community. I love the vision that you've set before us to be an authentic community that makes Jesus fully known so others can come to fully know him. And Lord, there's weeks and days that we go and we forget this, that we are called to be um, for one another. That it's okay to be in need, that actually that's what it's about, that we need you as our savior and we need community to remind us that. And so, Lord, as we go out this week, would you remind us, would you encourage us, would you empower us to live this life in community, holding one another up in faith and action? We pray this in your name. Amen.